0: All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and we'll open them to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And I've taken the title of my message tonight from those famous immortal words of Rodney King after the L.A. riots in 1992. If you remember, Rodney King had just finished off a 12-pack of malt liquor, got into his car, and he drove off in a drunken stupor. He was spotted by L.A. police officers who, after a high-speed chase, they stopped him, drug him out of his car, and just beat the living daylights out of him. And these officers were tried for for uh, brutality, police brutality, and they were acquitted. So after that, there were racial tensions that flared because, of course, Rodney King was black and three of the police officers who beat him were white. And before you know it, there was a riot and there were 53 people who were killed. Well, that brought into the picture another man by the name of Reginald Denny. And he was a a, a fellow who was just uh, driving his delivery truck and was on his way to make a delivery when he wandered into an intersection where the riots were taking place. And in retaliation, they drug him from his truck and then beat him. And while all that was going on, Rodney King went on television and he pleaded for the riots to stop. And his actual words were, can we all just get along? Which are usually quoted as, can't we all just get along? Now that's a very interesting question. And the answer to it is no. We can't get along and we don't get along. And the problem is a three little word called S-I-N. Because of the sinful nature, we can't all just get along. Sin is the source of all the conflict that we have in the world. It's the reason that there are wars. It's the reason there is crime. It's even the reason why that you get in a fight with your husband or your wife at the dinner table. And that shouldn't surprise us then that, or it shouldn't surprise us, that conflicts will arise in the church. There are church squabbles and there are church splits. Sometimes those arguments are over righteous conflicts and they're ones that have to be fought because uh, there are doctrinal matters that are involved. And there are some doctrinal matters that you simply cannot resolve by compromise because those things go at the very heart and the core of the gospel. But more often than not, church splits don't co- are not caused by doctrinal division, but rather they're over petty issues, over things that people just decide that they're going to choose up sides, get everybody involved in an argument, and before you know it, the whole church is suffering because of it, and everybody gets beat up. Well, this was a potential problem in the Philippian church, and we read about it here in Philippians chapter 4. And this book, partially, was written to resolve a conflict. It was written to stop a church war before it could get started, and eventually, if that had left been left to go on it would have destroyed the whole church now we're going to look at this tonight and we're going to see how that something petty and innocuous when it's not resolved can often lead to disaster so we're looking at philippians chapter 4 stand with me please as we read god's word Uh, philippians chapter 4 let's start with verse number one therefore my brethren dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown so stand fast in the lord my dearly beloved I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow labors, whose names are in the book of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for... The time that we have to gather together tonight. And we just pray, Lord, that you might bless our study in your word. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you look at verse number 2 once again, it says, I beseech you, Odious, and I beseech Sintyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, I want to begin our outline tonight with this. The case of conflict. The case of conflict. Now, we finished... Uh, three full chapters in Philippians and we come all the way down to chapter 4 and here we get to the real point of the epistle. Paul has already hinted that there is a problem in three different places in this book. In chapter 1 verse number 9 he wrote, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now there we see that Paul is praying for discernment. He's setting things up to show these people that there are much higher principles involved than just the relationship that we have with one another. And in fact, what goes on between two people and the church can affect the whole church and can even affect those that are on the outside of the church. Now, he builds on this, hinting once again at this problem in the end of the first chapter. And he says in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1, "...only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel." Now, we see something's going on here because Paul is pleading for unity in the Spirit. He talks about striving together. Now, in chapter 2, he also gives us another hint. There he writes, "...fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves." So there seems to be something here that's kind of hanging out in the background. And when we get to chapter 4, Paul finally gets to the point of it. And what, this is just Paul's tactful way of getting to this problem. Well, what is that problem? Well, I call it the fight between the gals. Verse number 2. I beseech you, Odias, and I beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, I hesitate to say that Paul sort of danced around this problem because he was afraid to attack it. But I think it could be better said that Paul was very tactful in his approach to this. He, he sets things up. He gets everybody's attention by presenting all of the doctrine that goes along with this. And indeed, it's marvelous doctrine. And we've been through some outstanding doctrines in the book of Philippians. So it's amazing here that Paul can see that a problem is seething beneath the surface. And he uses that to anchor the Philippian people to some amazing truths. Now I've I've used 41 sermons up till now to try to explain those truths. Uh, There was the discussion that we had about perseverance in chapter 1. There was the teaching about how God works in us in chapter 2. Also in chapter 2, we discussed the lordship of Christ and explained how that Christ became a servant of men. Chapter 3 got us into a discussion of the righteousness of Christ and how that has to be imputed to us for our justification. And we also learned then that the best of men and the best of our efforts we still fall far short of the glory of God. And so there is some really good doctrine in, in 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 this book. And it's hard to believe that in the midst of all that, that Paul had on his mind a church bat between two ladies. And so all of this is because of that conflict. And the reason that Paul zeroes in on this conflict is because he knows that you can have all of the doctrine, you can teach the highest theological concepts that you can get into, but in the end, all of that will come to naught if you can't hold the church together. Now, Paul is a very practical man, and he knows that as much as you need to ground people in the deep doctrines of God's Word, he also knows that you do have to get right down where everybody lives. You have to teach people to apply what they have learned. What you learn from the study of God's Word, what you learn from sermons, what you learn from the teachers that we have in church, all of those things are to make a difference in your life. And if they don't make a difference in you, you haven't really got the point. And so Paul comes down from these lofty heights of doctrine, and what does he do? He deals with a cat fight. Now here he is, the chosen apostle of God. He's the greatest defender of the faith in all of Christian history. And he's in the middle of a squabble between two ladies. And you know what that's like? It's like the President of the United States, with all of his troubles that he goes through, with all the economic problems that there are, spending billions of dollars on this program and that program. And the President leaving all of that behind, leaving the White House and coming to your house to sit down at your table and talk to you about your measly family budget. That's kind of what this is like. But the practicality of Paul's mind says if you lose the church you lose everything and so you can deal with all the deep doctrines if you want but what happens if you lose the church well the real practical side of this is that you do have to deal with everyday problems because in a sense that's also doctrine how you get along with me and how i get along with you that is doctrinal And that's why he prefaces this with the attitude of Christ in uh, chapter 2, verse number 5, where he says, "...let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." Now, let's go back here to Paul's tactful approach. He's a smart man. So he knows better to jump into a cat fight with both feet right at the start. I mean, if he does that, he knows that he's going to alienate both of the women and probably he's going to get beat up in the process. And you men, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, If your wife has a problem with somebody and with all of your wisdom and your discernment, you think that you're going to get into the middle of it and fix it, then you know one word wrongly misplaced can get your eyes scratched out. So you have to be very careful about this. So Paul's too smart for all of that. And so what he does, he sets this whole thing up thing up. He gives some teaching. He, he gets people to thinking about things. He appeals to their reason. He knows that Christians have the Holy Spirit that are living on the inside. And he knows that when the Word of God is preached that the Holy Spirit can take that Word and he, and he works on the heart and he makes a correction to the problem. Now what Paul is doing here is showing spiritual wisdom. And that spiritual wisdom far outshines any natural human wisdom that we have. Now let's imagine for just a moment the scene here. The letter from the Apostle Paul arrives at the Philippian church. The courier brings it into the service and he hands it to the pastor. Now, in the opening lines of the letter, he sees that this is a letter that's been addressed to all of the church members. It's it's not a personal letter, not to him personally, but this is a letter that's addressed to everybody that's in the church. And so the letter begins, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So he begins to read the letter. Everybody is assembled, the whole church is there, and he begins to read. Now, he reads the part about Paul's love for this church. He starts reading those doctrinal sections that we've discussed. He comes across these little bumps that are indicators of Paul's real reason for writing. He comes to verse number 9 in chapter 1. And remember, originally there weren't any verses. The verses were added much, much later. So I'm just pointing out this is the place where he would be reading. So he goes to verse number 9, and he sees that There's a little hint of something there, but he probably doesn't catch that. He comes to verse number 27 in chapter 1, and there's that other hint that there's a problem in the church. Then he reads on to uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and the hints begin to, to get a little bit stronger. But as of yet, there's nobody who's really caught on to what Paul's point is. They're all absorbing the doctrine, just like as we were studying it and going through the things that Paul says, we're all absorbing the doctrine. And so there are people that are nodding in agreement. There's an amen that comes from over here and an amen that comes from over there. You never know, there might have been a a fundamentalist there and he throws a scroll up in the air and says, Hallelujah, and catches it on the way back down. So everybody's nodding in agreement. I mean, they're, they all know that here's some great doctrine that the Apostle Paul is laying out. Now All of the women, they're sitting there in silence. They're listening. Now, they know enough church doctrine. They've heard Paul preach before, so they know that women are supposed to keep silent in the church. And so they're just sitting there, and they're nodding their heads in agreement. And everybody's feeling spiritual. The, the Spirit's gripping them. But then the pastor comes to chapter four, verse number two. Nobody's yet caught on, and so he reads verse number two. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Sintike, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, can you imagine how stunned they were? I mean, the apostle Paul has just nailed it. I mean, here he's named these two ladies that are causing a problem in the church, the that division that's coming out of their argument. Now, what do you think that they're going to do? everybody's in agreement they've already heard the doctrine they've already agreed what he has to say and so what are they going to do well they're going to fix the problem they're going to get busy on that problem because all the church now knows what's supposed to be done now i want you to notice here that paul does not land on one side or another of this argument now do you know what that tells us it tells us that it was not a doctrinal matter this is not a salvific issue. This is not an argument over the deity of Christ or about election and predestination. This is not uh, an argument about circumcision or baptism or on the Lord's Supper. Now, if it had been any of those things, and Paul would have, he would have never hesitated to set that straight. He would have come down on the right side and he said, this is the way it's supposed to be. He'd hammer it all out. He'd give them the correct doctrine, and he'd send the church off in the right direction. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even mention what the beef is all about. Nobody even knows what the argument is. We can't even hazard a guess as to what they're arguing about. So that tells us that what's going on in this church is just a stupid, petty issue. They got two people upset, and now it's beginning to upset the unity of the church. But that argument, no matter how petty it is, it's upset everything, and it's threatening to do a lot of damage. And you know that's the way it is in a lot of churches. It's not the doctrine... It's not a doctrinal problem. It's not that the preacher went out on some wild tangent and now he's teaching everybody that you can eat Cheez-Its and drink Kool-Aid at the Lord's Supper. It's not that kind of a thing. These are people that just got sideways on some issue and they're about to split the church. Now, you may remember this true story that I told you about a church that split over the placement of the piano. There were some people who thought that the piano would be better if it was on, would be your right, my left. I'll just use my left and right because I'll get confused if I don't. But some people were arguing, oh, the piano's better over the left side. And there were other people who were arguing, well, the piano, no, is better over on the right side. And so there were people that were on the left side of the issue and they got up at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning and they came to church before church started and they moved the piano over to the left side. Well, the right-siders didn't like that, so the next Sunday, they came in at 7.30 in the morning, and they moved the piano back over to the right side. The next Sunday, the left-siders decided they didn't like that, and so they came in at 6 o'clock, and they moved the piano back over to the left side. And this thing went back and forth until people were getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get to the church to put the piano on the side that they wanted. Now, this got into a big argument, and what happened was... The right-siders fell out with the left-siders and they had a church split. Now that's peculiar enough, but what really makes the whole thing all so nutty, that the name of the church was Harmony Baptist Church. So they started a new church right across the street from the old church that was the new Harmony Baptist Church. And so you have the new Harmony Baptist Church on one side of the road and the Harmony Baptist Church on the other side of the road. Can you imagine what people thought when they drove down the street? I mean... Harmony Baptist Church, neither one of them knows anything about harmony. Now, those kinds of things get started up in churches, and they get fueled up, and their church splits. And it comes out of things like this, a fight between the gals. They just can't get along over some nonsense issue, and it's really not important at all. Now, the point is that those issues are always there in churches. It's always going on. I remember when I was growing up that one thing that made my dad grow, go gray long before his time was uh, the church nursery. Now, he pastored the church for 29 years, and one thing that he never solved was the enigma of the church nursery. And so uh, here I am all of these years later, and what I've learned to do is to go down the hall and smile and wave as I go by and not even say a word. See, Brian Petros, the deacon over the nursery, and, and he's like a man without a country. But there was a church conflict, and, and uh, that, that's where those kinds of things take you. Sometimes you have a fight over doctrinal issues, and you have to deal with those things. You have to fight over those necessary things. And if that comes up in a church, then you gear up, and you get the Word of God, and you go at it. Because you can't let doctrinal issues that are serious to the nature of the church and serious to salvation, you can't let those things go. And so you have to argue about them. Recently, there was a brother who wrote to me, and, and he said, we've got a problem going on in our church. There's One of the leaders of the church has gone off on some fundamental doctrine. And he says, what do you think that we ought to do about that? Well, the thing you have to do about it, you have to fight over it, and you have to get the person out who's teaching the wrong doctrine. That's all that you can do. So if error occurs in the church of that kind, you have to do something about it because doctrinal errors destroy churches. But petty issues also destroy churches too. So when you find something that you disagree with, and really that thing is nothing more than a preference, if you come across a doctrine that's a little bit different, its interpretation, and doesn't affect the church adversely, what do you do? Well, you keep your mouth shut. You stay out of the fight. If I get up and I say, as I did Wednesday night, that I don't believe that anybody's going to be saved during the millennium. But preacher X says, oh, yes, they will. That's not a fight that you want to be in. If I like blue seats and you like red seats, you know what you do? You sit there and wear something that matches blue. We don't get in a fight over that. Now, let me go on here because Paul proposes a solution to the problem. Next week, we're going to come back and we'll talk about the internal attitudes that lead to problems, and we'll talk about the cure for those attitudes. But here we see that Paul works on this immediately, without even mentioning all the spiritual motives that may be involved here in this conflict. He goes to work on it. He doesn't tell us what the particular argument is about. He just works on a resolution. Now, we find that in verse number 3. He says, "...I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow," Help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul has a fight between the gals, and so what does he do? He turns to a fellow who looks at God. He says, I entreat thee, true yoke fellow, help those women. Now I can imagine that this guy is sitting there, and he knows who Paul is addressing, and he says, Me? You want me to get in the middle of those two? And it's the same reaction when I get from Brian when I say, you deal with the nursery problem. Same, same reaction. But there's a lot of interesting argument here about who this person is. Who is the yoke fellow? And by the way, that word simply means someone who carries the same load. It means someone who works with you, someone who helps you carry the load. And Paul had some people in the churches that were willing to help him carry the load. And interestingly, Paul talks about that. He talks about a burden that it was to deal with all the churches that he had to deal with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is there talking about uh, uh, the cause of the gospel. He spoke about what he'd been through for preaching. and He spoke about shipwrecks. He talked about being stoned. He said that in his travels that he was in danger of robbers and then he talked about being hungry and thirsty and all of that. But he says something interesting in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. He said, Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now, it was a burden for Paul to deal with all the church problems. And so he, he had to make sure that all these churches that he started, they were carrying on well without him. And then they're going on and they're still preaching the doctrines that he delivered to them. And so what did he need? He needed some people who could help. He needed some good, strong pastors in churches. He needed good deacons in churches. He needed good church workers in those churches that could help him to carry that load, carry the burden with him. Now, as a pastor, I thank the Lord for those who helped carry the load. I I appreciate our deacons so much. And I'm not a pastor who's afraid of the deacons that they're going to get together and throw me out. They're, They're good, solid men. They follow God's leading. They stand with me and they help me as we minister to the church. But Paul has someone in mind here. And it's interesting to look at the theories about who this person might be. Is this somebody that we've never heard of? I don't really think so. But he refers to this person as a yoke fellow, and that's because everybody already knew his character. He was familiar to everybody there. They knew what kind of man that he was. Now, there are some commentators who really don't think that the Greek word here for this has to be translated at all. The word is sudsagos, and there are commentators who think that what that is is a proper name. And names are often descriptive of people. Sudsagos means yoke fellow. And often you find names that are descriptive of people. For instance, you go back to the Old Testament. And you look at uh, Jacob and Esau. They were given descriptive names. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 25, Esau was born. And the scripture says, And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. Now he came out Covered with red head. And so they named him Esau. And that word means Harry. I don't know why they didn't just call him Harry. Jacob and Harry uh, doesn't have the same ring, I don't guess. But they called him Esau. Jacob's name, on the other hand, means supplanter, And that word means that he would take what was not rightfully his. And that's exactly what he did. He weaseled Esau out of his birthright. So some think that the Greek word here, soothes a ghost, doesn't need to be Translated, but this is a man's name. And so you don't translate it. So the pastor's reading along in the letter, and he comes to this and he says, suits a ghost, you go and you help those two women. Well, that's one idea, and, and that might be right. But there are other ideas, and I think that this is probably right that he's really referring to Epaphroditus. Now, see, this is one of those controversies that you don't want to split a church over. We're not going to get an argument over here whether it's Epaphroditus or somebody by the name of Sudes goes. But I do think that we're talking here about Epaphroditus. If you go back to chapter 2, you'll find uh, that Paul spoke very fondly of Epaphroditus. He'd been at the Philippian church. He ministered there. He had the respect and the love and admiration of the people. Now, if we go back to chapter 2, if you want to turn there quickly, verse number 25, Paul writes here at length about him. He says in verse 25, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger... And he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that he had heard that he had been sick. He had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I send him, therefore, the more carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. So here we see that there was a very special link between Epaphroditus and the Philippian church. Now Paul calls him here a companion in labor. And, of course, that goes along with yoke fellow. He also called him a fellow soldier. And then he says in verse number 29, he says, hold him in reputation. That means that they were to esteem him. They were to highly honor him. And so for Paul to ask Epaphroditus to step into this conflict makes sense because he already has the respect of the people. And Paul has already told them that you need to highly esteem him. Now, it could be very likely that when Paul wrote chapter 2 in those last verses there, speaking of Epaphroditus, that he had in mind what he was going to say in chapter 4. He's already setting this thing up here, that he's going to call on Epaphroditus. So it could be very well that Paul had chosen him to be the arbiter. Now, there we see another piece of Paul's wisdom. Because when you have a dispute between two people, and two people can't settle their differences, then... Wouldn't it make sense that you would have a fresh set of eyes to look at the problem? I mean, let somebody else who is highly respected, someone who knows the Word of God, somebody who has a good reputation, makes good decisions, let that person provide a perspective that the others don't see. Now, Epaphroditus has no dog in the fight. It's not his problem. He's an independent person. But he's a man of wisdom. And so he can take the Scriptures, he can help reserve the conflict and and not in an arbitrary way but in a spiritual way and so he becomes a spiritual arbitrator. Now Paul, if you remember, used that very same reasoning with the Corinthians. They had a problem with disputes between church members and what they did was instead of settling the disputes between themselves of calling a Christians in to look at the problem and evaluate it and see what they should do, rather these Corinthian Church members were taking their disputes before civil magistrates. And so what they were doing, they were going out to people that were lost and asking them to settle disputes. And so there were lawsuits that were going on. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, and let's read about this in First Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul is telling them that you don't go to heathen people, non-Christians, to settle disputes between Christians. Now, let's start reading in uh, verse number 1 of chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, verse number 1. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. Now, before I go on, I just want you to look there at uh, verse number 4 again. If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. That doesn't mean, it looks like what he's saying is, pick out the worst people to uh, the least esteemed in order to settle your arguments. That's not what he means. He means that Christians are the least esteemed as far as the world is concerned. So you're calling on people who are highly esteemed in God's eyes, but, lo- but lowly esteemed in the eyes of the world. So you get Christians to settle your disputes. So the implication here then is that you look for wise men in the church to settle disputes between believers. And the same thing is taught in Galatians chapter 6. There he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now what this means, and and we don't want to overlook this, is that these two women who disagreed must respect the decision of the arbiter. Now if he is a godly person, if, if he is esteemed by the church to be so, then when he makes a decision, that is binding on both parties." And a person who is a spiritual person will respect that authority. And if they don't, and they continue in the way that they're going, the only recourse that a church has is to remove that person. Put them out of the church before they end up poisoning the whole body. So here we see Paul's wisdom. We see tactfulness. We see practicality on display in these two verses. Now, I want want to just make one other remark before we finish tonight. Uh, Next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the attitudes behind the disputes. But I want to mention something to you here that's just a little bit off the subject. This is Paul's statement in verse number 3. He says here that these women labored. He says, they labored with me in the gospel. There are some people who will grasp at straws to prove their doctrine. And so they'll lift this part of this verse out of its context, and they'll say, well, right here we have proof that women can be preachers. They labored with Paul in the gospel, they say, and so that means they were preachers. Well, Paul had no such designs. That, that goes against everything that Paul had taught already in the Scriptures. In very clear places, he taught against that. And so when he says that these women labored with him in the gospel, he meant that they were working in their proper place, that they are working the place that God had given in a role that God gives. And that would be hospitality, that's in witnessing, that's teaching other women and children. But in no case does it mean that women ought to be up in the pulpits and teaching and taking authority over men. So really what Paul then is doing here in, in this passage is he's making an appeal to the women. Now, they're listening to the letter as it's being read. Maybe they were taken by surprise when they heard their names mentioned. But what Paul has done, he's used wisdom to try to settle this dispute. Paul knows how to deal with people. And you'll notice how he goes about it. He hands out some compliments. He talks about how that uh, they had helped him and their past service was great. He, takes, uh, he takes, or makes acknowledgment of their faithfulness. And he says, these women were useful to me in the service of the Lord. And when you treat people like that, then they're more willing to resolve the conflicts. Can't we all just get along? Well, the world can't. But Christians can when we're yielded to the Spirit instead of being selfish and yielded to the flesh. We can get along if we're all in the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for... Uh, your word and the wisdom that we find in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the study that we've had tonight. Lord, we just pray that we would be a church where there is no conflict, where we would be unselfish, where we would esteem others highly and better than ourselves. And, Lord, whenever we see these arguments that come about, help us, Lord, to defer on those. And, and Lord, may we always have the mind of Christ in us, that we want to uh, keep the church body pure, keep it away from sin, just keep it unified so we can do your work in this world. Bless us as we sing and prepare to go to to go home to leave this place, and we just thank you, Lord, again for this day that you've given us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's please.